Let's pray, okay? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we um, are grateful that we are no longer slaves to fear, but um, you have made us uh, children of God. And Lord, for that, we're grateful. We gather now together, Lord, to um, learn from your word, to be challenged, Father, to grow in our love for you. And so, Father, we want to commit this time to you as we pray in the strong name of Christ. Amen. I was in high school. It was my junior year. Um, and uh, it was fall of that semester, just a month or two into the uh, new semester, the new school year. And uh, one of our classes, uh, we're, we sat at tables. There's four students per table. And so I was getting to know the other three students because they were assigned seats. We were always sat together. So you know how it is. You get to know somebody over the course of a, a semester and you know you spend a lot of time talking and goofing around together. And, and uh getting to know the people at my table. And I got to know one guy there sat across from me. His name was Rod. And Rod and I were developing a good friendship. Well, one day, Rod uh, comes into class and he brings his piles of book, a piles, pile of books and sets them on the table. And as he do, did, I noticed the book on top, the very book on top was the Satanic Bible. Well, that caught my attention. I was like, what? I was like, you know, it kind of shocked me. And I said, Rod, what's up with that? Why, Why are you reading that? And he said, I've been told I can get power from that book. He said, I've been told that I can get power and I'm interested in that. I want that power. Well, my heart was up in my throat right? And I was like, ah, I got to say something. And I don't know exactly what I said, what my exact words were, but the gist of what I said was, have you ever tried reading the Bible? And he said, no, I haven't. I said, hey, I want to challenge you towards something. Before you read that, if I gave you a Bible, would you read the Bible? And to my amazement, he said, yeah, sure. You bring me a Bible and show me where to read, I'll read it. So I was like, okay, we got a deal, right? And so I brought him a Bible, and as I did so, I invited him to come to my youth group. And I just got my license, so I was anxious to give people rides, right? And so even though he lived clear on the opposite side of town, every Tuesday night, I went all the way, 25 minutes to the other side of town, picked him up, and then 20 minutes back the other way. And I did that for a couple of years, actually, as it turned out. But in the course of that time, just a few short weeks afterwards, Rod gave his life to Christ and understood the power of the gospel and that true power is found in Jesus Christ. And I was so grateful. But I'll tell you, it was a watershed moment for me personally because what it did for me as a young Christian is it proved to me, hey, the gospel works it actually works. It's true. It can actually change people's lives. And see, I grew up in the church, so I didn't have like a dramatic conversion story or whatever. You know what I mean? And, and, but to see it in the lives of one of my friends who had no church background and was starting to make some really bad decisions and see their life turned around, it impacted me for the rest of my life where I was like, you know what? From that experience on, I wanted a piece of the action. I wanted in on that for the rest of my life. And you know what? That's what I want for us as a church, to experience God using us to bring salvation and bring life change to other people. 
It's the most amazing thing in the world. And last week, if you were here, we, we, I talked about how as a church, as a leadership, we have a holy discontentment. And our holy discontentment is this. We've noticed in recent years, we've seen a trickle of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for that trickle. It's exciting. It's good to see. It brings some encouragement. But the two questions we began to wrestle with was, first of all, are we satisfied with a trickle? And secondly, more importantly, is God satisfied with the trickle? And our answer to both those questions was no. We're not satisfied with the trickle, and we honestly don't believe God is satisfied with the trickle. We believe he wants to do more through ACC than just a trickle. We want to see a surge. We want to see a surge of people coming to Christ, and we believe that's the preferred future for our church. And so it's our commitment over the next three to five years to grow a culture at this church that values outreach, that commissions and equips each one of you to infiltrate your workplaces and your schools and your neighborhoods and in a natural organic way share your faith and draw people to Christ through your testimony and through the way that you live your life and see a surge of people come to him so how do we do this how do we change, grow the culture of our church and, and, and value outreach to that degree to where we see a surge? And here's where it starts. It starts with us loving God more. That as a church, as individuals, our passion for Christ goes up. And as it does, our love for God will naturally draw people to him when they see our passion and our commitment and our love for him. Now, you and I loving God, that's not a natural thing. We've got to learn how to love God. What comes naturally for you and I is loving ourselves. That comes super easy and very natural, right? But loving God is a supernatural thing that we have to learn how to do. But here's our focus. Here's our focus. Our focus as a church is loving God most to love others best. Our commitment to love God most to love others best. The order here is crucial, all right? And it reflects scriptural teaching. To reverse the order of this is catastrophic. To choose to love people first and love God secondary is a huge mistake, and here's why. Eventually, rather quickly, truth will be compromised and eventually abandoned. And concepts such as sin and repentance and judgment and personal holiness and purity and obedience will be discarded in the name of loving other people. If loving other people is put before loving God. And so the order is absolutely essential. And in fact, Jesus taught this. I want you to see Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 37. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And so someone who had 
uh, the time and the knowledge on their hands counted. And it's been determined there's at least 613 different commandments in the Old Testament. That's a lot to keep track of, isn't it? 613 different commandments. But Jesus simplified it for us. Jesus boiled it down and said, hey, basically, you want to summarize the entire law of Moses and all the prophets? It's this. One, love God with your entire being. Two, love other people. You do that business, it's all good, right? And you see that throughout the scripture. You see it in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which is the basis of our Judeo-Christian ethic, um, people have, have, have noticed the fact that the first four commandments are about loving God. You know, have no other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and so on. And the next six commandments are all about loving others. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not, do not steal and so on. And, and so you see the structure even within the Ten Commandments of how everything is encapsulated in either loving God or loving people. And so when we think about you and I developing our love for God, I don't want to begin by emphasizing, hey, we got to love God more. We got to love God more. And here's why. If that was how I led, if that was my emphasis, what it would breed is an atmosphere of religiosity because you all would respond with, yeah, we got to be more religious or yeah, we got to be more moral, you know, and it would create this got to try harder got to be more committed kind of thing, you know? And I think that wouldn't be the best approach because I think it would develop within us a self-reliance and this idea that we can do it ourselves and that that's how we get God's attention. That's how we get God to love us if we love him really, really well. And I would never want to communicate those things. Here's the appropriate starting point. If we start talking about loving God more, Here's where it needs to start. And this is my premise for this morning, okay? My premise is this, that our love for God is based upon his love for us. That before we can really delve into the whole topic of you and I loving God, we've got to become aware and embrace the fact that God loves us. That it starts there. I want to share with you just a small sampling of scripture that teaches this truth, the tremendous love that God has for you and I. I want to start with Ephesians 1 verse 4. You ask the question, who made the move first? Who made the move first? Check out Ephesians 1 4. Even before he made the world, God loved us. God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. So, God made the first move and he chose you. He loved you. When? Before he made the world. What? That's mind-blowing, isn't it? And, and our finite brains can't even begin to wrap around that concept. But this verse exhibits what the theologians called the infiniteness of God or the eternality of God. And it's the idea that God is, has no beginning and has no end, that God has always existed. And so he's not bound by time like you and I. And it's an illustration that's, that's not perfect, but I, I think it helps us gain some understanding. And it's this, that you and I, in our finiteness, in our humanity, we experience time in a linear fashion, 
So here's how it goes for you and I. Our earliest memories, uh, you know, uh, kindergarten, let's just say. Uh, and we had kindergarten and then grade school and all the events of that. And then middle school, how horrible. And then high school and then maybe college, maybe not. And then we get married and then we start a job and then we have kids and then we retire and then um, we golf a lot and play bingo. And then, and that's how we experience life right? Because it's, it's like time marches on. It goes linear by us like that. And the thing is, the way you and I experience time, if we like totally blow it in kindergarten and like we constantly bite people and we don't share and, you know, and that kind of thing, we can't go back and undo it because the way we experience time, we can't go backwards. We're constantly heading this direction. And so time is like a parade where we're standing there and time just constantly goes past it. But see, the way God views time is he's like a mile above the parade looking down on it, and he can see the whole thing at once. And he's not bound by time. So which means, is in a glance, God sees Moses parting the Red Sea at the same time that he sees President Lincoln being assassinated at the same time as he sees Dave on stage preaching this morning as well as he sees 100 years from now. In a glance, God just sees it all. He doesn't experience time or he's not bound by time the same way that you and I are. Now, I know that's impossible for us to wrap our brains around, but it speaks of the hugeness of God, okay? And in this hugeness of God, your name is not lost. That in spite of God being creator of heaven and earth and being sovereign and in control and everything else, he knows your name and it says that he chose you in Christ, he loved you in Christ before he made the world from our perspective. That he's always loved you and chose you. Not based upon our own merit or our own lovability, but on his sovereign, merciful choice. Now check this out. First John 4, verse 10. Uh, John's been in this letter that he's writing, he's been trying to explain to the readers what love is. And so he's been approaching it from a lot of different angles, trying to explain what love is. And have you ever gotten to the point in a conversation where you're trying to explain something to somebody and you you can tell by the look on their face, they're not really following you? And so eventually you get that to that point where you say, oh, okay, listen, this is it. This is what I'm trying to say. And at that moment, what comes out of your mouth next is the most concise, clear explanation that you possibly can give. You know what I mean? To get it through to the person. Well, that's where John is at in his writing here. And he says, okay, okay, okay. Here it is. This is what I'm trying to say. This is love. I can't get any more clear. I can't be any more concise than what I'm about to say. And look at his description of love. He says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. This is an example for you and I on how we're to love others. The way God loved us is the way we're to love others, but it also, we have to soak in how God did love us. Look at the description of real love. First of all, it says that real love takes the initiative. That real love isn't reciprocal where it's like, well, if that person talks to me, maybe I'll talk to them. Or if that person invites me to their house, maybe I'll invite them to my house or whatever, right? But real love takes the initiative and, and boom, walks across the room and introduces themselves and befriends them, takes the initiative. Real love takes the initiative. 
If God waited for you and I to make the first move towards him, it would have never happened. Our spirits were dead. We needed to be awakened spiritually. And so God had to do that awakening. God intervened in our life. If he didn't, we wouldn't have ever entered into a relationship with him. And so real love takes the initiative. Secondly, it moves into action. Real love isn't just about warm, gushy feelings, but love always moves into action. And it says, God loved us so that he sent his son, sent his son. It was an action on his part. Third, it acts generously and sacrificially. It acts generously and sacrificially. I can't think of anything more generous or sacrificial than for God the Father to send God the Son to take on human flesh and to bleed, to be beat, to suffer, and to die a criminal's death on our behalf. I can't think of a gift more generous or more sacrificial. And real love always inconveniences itself. Real love will be sacrificial, will put the needs of other people ahead of their own needs. And God expressed his love in a generous, sacrificial way. He knew we needed a savior, which leads to the fourth point, that real love meets the greatest need. And God understood our greatest need was to be reconciled to him. That there's no other way we could gain forgiveness other than him interceding on our behalf. Final verse I want to take you to to show you how much God loves you is Romans 5 verse 8. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. A lot of people have the false notion that before they come to God, they need to get their act together. And so they think, oh man, I haven't been in church forever. I can't remember the last time I prayed. Or maybe I never have gone to church. I've never prayed, you know? And they have things in their past that are embarrassing to them. Things that bring shame. They have a lot of regrets, you know? And, and people are, are afraid to come to God because they don't know how he's gonna respond. And they're afraid that God's going to reject them, you know? And, and so they shy away from God and, and they're just not sure how it's gonna work out. And if they do decide to take steps towards God, they're like, well, I need to straighten myself out and then I'll start to pray or then I'll come to church or then I'll start reading my Bible. And like they've got to make penance for things in their past. But you see, God would beg to differ. And God communicates clearly, I loved you while you were still in rebellion to me. While you still ignored me, I loved you and I demonstrated my love while you were still a sinner by sending Christ to die for you. So what it means is that you and I can come to God just as we are. That in all our sin, all our bad choices, all our rotten attitudes, we can come to God as we are because he's already said, I love you. And the good news is God loves us just as we are and he loves us enough to not let us stay as we are. And so there's immediate acceptance and there's a hope for real change to become people of integrity, to become people of love, to become people who can really have a connection with God. God went all out to express his love for us. And you need to know that God is for you, not against you. You matter to him. And I want to say to you, 
that you cannot think of a good enough reason to not come to God. You can't think of a good enough reason to not come to God even this morning. I want to suggest to you that if you had a brain the size of a pea and you only had the capacity to comprehend and retain one thing, one piece of data, I want to suggest the most important thing your pea-sized brain would need to have in it is this, that God is crazy in love with you. That God loves you and calls you to himself. I think that's the most important thing any human being could know is that God loves them through Jesus Christ. So the appropriate question right now is simply this. Have you responded to the love of God? Because you see, God definitely loves each one of us, but a response is called for. A response is necessary. And the New Testament uses the words, this response is called trust, faith, belief. Interchangeable terms. They all mean basically the same thing. And that's our response. It's not enough to know God loves you. That's an important starting point. But then it's okay. You need to respond to the fact that you know God loves you and embraces you. And here's the response. The response to God is, first of all, to recognize the identity of Christ, to realize that Jesus was the Son of God. And during his time here on earth, Jesus went out of his way to prove he wasn't just another man, but he was God in human flesh. And so believing in the deity of Christ and and identifying Christ is that. Secondly, trusting in the mission of Christ. Try. Christ was clear that he didn't come just to be a good example or a great teacher. He came to be a suffering savior. And that Christ's death on the cross was a substitutionary death. He died in our place. And then he rose again from the dead to give us new life. And so trusting in the mission of Christ that it was his death and resurrection. That's what it's all about. And then lastly, answer the call of Christ. He calls us to give our lives to him. And that's faith. That's trust, to turn your life over to him. So I implore you to receive the love of God. I implore you this morning that if you haven't responded to the love God has for you in childlike faith, look to God and say, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe Jesus died for me and that he rose again from the dead. And Lord God, I give you my life. See, God can give you the grace to pray that prayer. God can give you the gift of faith to respond to his love and become one of his children. And I would encourage you to do that. You don't even have to talk to me after the service. You don't have to come forward right now, right where you're sitting. You can respond to the love of God and know that you're indeed one of his children and you've received forgiveness. As we close our time in the Word, I found a great prayer. I wish that I had written it, but I hadn't. I found it. But I I read this prayer, and I was like, this is beautiful. This is perfect for how we should close our time in God's Word together this morning, given the topic and given the Scripture we've looked at. And so uh, we've got it up on the screen now, and I want to invite you to pray this prayer out loud with me. All right? And so uh, please join me, and let's let's pray it together, uh, reading it out loud. Heavenly Father, 
Forgive us for falling so short in loving you like you deserve. And thank you for covering this grievous sin by the precious blood of Jesus. We repent. Give us the grace to love you, your son, and your Holy Spirit with all our hearts. But we do not merely wish to love you with our heart's current capacities. We want our hearts enlarged. So whatever it takes, Lord, increase our delight in you as the greatest treasure of our hearts. In the mighty name and for the sake of Jesus, amen.